2 Corinthians chapter 3. I'll be reading the second half of the chapter, beginning in verse 7 through verse 18. Please give your attention to the word of God. Now if the ministry of death, carved in letters on stone, came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, how much more will what is permanent have glory? Since we have such a hope, we are very bold, not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted, because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Imagine yourselves walking up to a very large, tall building in the middle of town. At the door, you're greeted by the same smiling person who greeted you last week. You're directed into a large, narrow room with high ceilings, with two long aisles of seats facing forward. The lights are low. The soft music is playing. There's a screen at the front that has scrolling announcements about upcoming events. You take a seat in your normal place and all the people around you are talking in hushed tones. The whole place has an atmosphere of expectation and even reverence. Where are you? Are you at church or at your local movie theater? Weekly attendance at the movie theater is much more a part of American culture now than in weekly attendance at church. Begs the question, what is the movie theater offering to our community that the church isn't offering? Well, as I contemplate that question, I'm reminded of an article that I read many years ago. It was called, How Films Are Replacing Religion. And I want to read to you just one paragraph from that article. It's talking about the appeal of a good movie. And it boils down the appeal of a good movie to one word, transcendence. 
The article says that feeling of complete and total transportation, elevation, and awe in the presence of a great film is something that very few people are even capable of feeling in church these days, simply because of the overwhelming difference in the symbolic power that the two institutions enjoy. The rhetorical and technological bag of tricks made available to modern ministers of the word simply pales in comparison to the gadgets at the disposal of a $90 million movie. Like I said, this was written a number of years ago. They spend a lot more than $90 million on movies these days. What we want from church is actually precisely what we get from movies. We want special effects. In our daily lives, we have this vague but unshakable sense that the eternal and invisible world is all around us, and we keep hoping that it will erupt into our daily lives, and yet it doesn't. And Tuesday afternoons just go slowly by one after another, year after year. But in the movie theater, the supernatural is really there for us to behold. We can transport ourselves all over the planet and beyond just by sitting still. We can see the progress and acceleration of time, and we can see life begin and progress and find redemption, all within two hours. The book of Ecclesiastes tells us that God has put eternity in the hearts of men. Human beings have a hunger for transcendence. We have a hunger and a thirst for contact with that which is far bigger than we are, far greater than we are. We need transcendence in our lives. We long for it. Like many of you, I'm a survivor of the worship wars that went on in the church back in the 1980s and 90s. I wouldn't say that they're over, but a lot of the issues we've kind of put behind us, I think, those wars between those who want the contemporary and the informal versus those who want the traditional and the liturgical. But in hindsight, I think back on all those debates and arguments and divisions that happened in the church, and I think, you know what? It seems like both sides were mostly missing the point. What we really long for in worship is this kind of a life-changing encounter with the glory of God. That's what we want. That's what we really need. That's what we're looking for. Look at verse 18 of this passage we read just a moment ago. Paul gives in verse 18 one of the most beautiful description of what a disciple of Jesus Christ's life is all about. This is the life of a disciple of Jesus Christ. Paul says, and we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. That's what I want my life to be about. Transformation by continual encounters with the transcendent glory of God. Transformation by continual encounters with the transcendent glory of God. Now, glory of God is a phrase that we use all the time. We use that phrase 
every time we're at church, multiple times, even in our normal, even though we tend to not talk in Christianese out in the world, we still find ourselves going back and talking about the glory of God. But it's one of those phrases, if some unbeliever were to say, what do you mean by the glory of God? I think a lot of us would struggle to define it. What is the glory of God? Well, according to Scripture, you put all of Scripture together, and Scripture continually uses the phrase, you put all of Scripture together, you find out that the glory of God is a display of his greatness. It's that simple. The glory of God is any display of his greatness. If you go back to the Old Testament, in Old Testament Hebrew language, and you look at the word glory that's used, if you were to do a word study and trace it back to its root, what's interesting is that the root word for glory in the Old Testament is the word that means heavy or weighty. And at first that sounds like a funny connection to what we call the glory of God, but you can see how easily that concept of heaviness can become a metaphor for something that has great substance to it. If any of you are old enough to remember what it was like to be back in the 60s, or if you remember the 60s, you will know that one of the favorite phrases of the uh, hippie dope heads was like, wow, man, that's like really heavy. And, and that's really what they meant. It's the same thing the Hebrews meant. Like, that's profound. That blows my mind. That's what they were saying. You know, it's, it's, it's a, something just great, awesome. That's what they're trying to say. And that's what the glory of God is. It's us seeing a display of his greatness. A display of his power, his beauty, his holiness, his perfection. In whatever way we see it, we see his glory. The glory of God is like a finished diamond, a cut diamond. If you've ever seen like the Hope Diamond, a big cut diamond, it has dozens and dozens of different facets, different faces that you can see and if as you, the diamond will look different and reflect the light differently depending on what angle you look at it from there's so many ways to look at it but they all come together and together all these attributes of God about his nature and who he is how great he is all together all these facets make up the glory of God that's what we're talking about it's a revelation of the greatness of who God is or what he is like his power his beauty his excellence that's a definition of the glory of God. But scripture tells us much more than that about the glory of God. It tells us the purpose of the glory of God. And it gives us two purposes. The first purpose is that the glory of God is the purpose of all creation. Why is the creation here? It's here because it's to the glory of God. That's what scripture tells us over and over again. Why did God create the world? Because he's bored? Because he's lonely? No, he created it for his glory. Psalm 19, verse 1. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. I remember my children asking me, why did God make the universe so big? You know, they'd start to teach them how far away the, the stars are. And they would just, again, blow the mind of your little children. And they say, why did God make the universe so big? And the answer is because... Only a God who's much bigger than that could create it. The universe is huge because God is so much bigger. He is so great. I remember as a kid, I grew up 
If anybody were to ask me where I grew up, I always say I grew up in Marionville, Pennsylvania. Almost nobody knows where Marionville, Pennsylvania is. Anybody know where Marionville, Pennsylvania is? All right, we got one per two people knows where Marionville, well, my wife, she doesn't count. Um, <laughs> she's forced to know where Marionville is. But, you know, it's a little tiny town of a little, I actually know, I think it's about 1,000 people up in northwestern Pennsylvania, up in the woods. 1,000 people in town, and that's the town I grew up in. We had 38 kids, 32 kids in my graduating class, public school that covered half the county. But I'm actually lying when I'm safe from, I'm from Marionville because I'm not from Marionville, actually. I'm from Redcliffe. Redcliffe was a little town of about three houses and a church that was six miles south of Marionville. So, so few people know who Marionville is. I just, that's my reference point. If you're not from Pennsylvania, I say I'm from Pittsburgh. But anyway, <laughs> my dad had seven acres where I grew up, and we had a big, big field, multiple acre field next to my house. And in Redcliffe, Pennsylvania, there is no light pollution. No street lights, no city lights, no stadium lights on the other side of town to block the stars. You go out in that field on a clear night, you can see billions of stars in marvelous arrangements all over the sky. And I remember as a child going out there and lying in that field and just being blown away by the greatness of creation. And praise God, by his grace, one day I came to know the creator of that great universe. But you know what? As amazing as the stars, the planets, the galaxies, as amazing as they are, that's not the pinnacle of creation. The Rocky Mountains aren't the pinnacle of creation. Niagara Falls isn't the pinnacle of creation. You and I are the pinnacle of creation. Genesis 1 and 2 say that we are the ones who are uniquely designed to reflect the glory of God. You and I are designed by God to reflect how great he is. We were made in his image. We uniquely reflect his glory in our intelligence, in our creativity, in our relational abilities, the love that we have for one another. In Isaiah chapter 43, verses 6 and 7, it says, Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth, Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory. If that doesn't improve your self-image, I don't know what does. God created you for his glory. As you are made in his image. So the purpose of all creation, and especially the creation of human beings, is for the glory of God. That's why everything was made. But scripture goes beyond that to say not only is the glory of God the purpose of all creation, the glory of God is also the purpose of redemption, the purpose of salvation. Why did God choose for himself a people and put into action a plan to save those people when they shook their fist at him and rebelled against him and disobeyed him? Why did God save his people? Well, David looked back on the history of redemption up until his day. And he said this in 2 Samuel chapter 7. And who is like your people Israel, the one nation on earth that God went out to redeem as a people for himself and to make a name for himself? He redeemed his people in order to make a name for himself, to display his glory before the world. That's really what Paul is trying to say. Ephesians 1 is 
one of the pinnacles of all scripture, of God's written word. Ephesians 1 is that chapter where Paul, in one very, very long sentence, tries to reveal the entire plan of salvation that God put in place all the way beginning back to when he first chose us before the foundation of the world until he completes our salvation when Christ comes again and restores all things to the way they were intended to be. He takes that whole scope of the entire plan of salvation and then listen to what he says about it. I'm just going to read three portions of it. This is Ephesians 1. I'm going to begin in verse 4. He chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will to the praise of his glorious grace. Why did he do all this? To the praise of his glorious grace. Down in verse 11. He says, in Christ we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. And verse 13, in Christ, him, in Christ, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. The whole purpose of the plan of salvation that's revealed in Scripture is to reveal the greatness of God, to show his glory to the world. That's the purpose. God created the world in order to display his glory, and God redeems the world, particularly his people, to display his glory. Everything that God does is to display his glory. That's the message of Scripture. Just as we say that man's chief end is to glorify God, we also say, just as wholeheartedly, God's chief end is to glorify himself. God's chief end is to glorify himself. If you get that concept from Scripture, then you have identified the central concept of the teachings of the greatest theologian in the history of the American, the American experiment, the, the great theologian Jonathan Edwards. That was one of the central concepts in General Jonathan Edwards' teaching. And, of course, we have his modern interpreter or channeler in John Piper, who has taken Edwards' concepts and he's made them so that you and I can read about it and understand it. But John Piper really zeroes in on this. You know, his, his, uh, his uh, Christian hedonism is based on this concept that we have to begin by understanding that the purpose of God's existence is to glorify himself. But, as Piper will remind us, that raises and begs an important question. How do we process that? How can you worship a God who, the main purpose of everything he does is to glorify himself? Doesn't that make God vain? Doesn't that God make God arrogant? Doesn't it make God a show-off? It troubles us. We don't like people who are always trying to impress us. <laughs> You've had friends like that, haven't you? always trying to tell you how smart they are or how good they are at sports or how rich they are or how influential they are. We don't like to hang around with people like that, but yet God's purpose is to glorify himself continuously for eternity. First of all, God doesn't need our praise. God doesn't need to impress us. It doesn't add anything to God for us to see his glory. Paul says in 
Acts 17, verse 25, God is not served by human hands as if he needed anything because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. You see, we don't worship because God needs our worship, and even though we act like that sometimes, like we're doing God some big favor when we show up at worship. God doesn't need our worship. We need to worship God. Matter of fact, that's our greatest need. Secondly, the Bible teaches us to be humble. But how can we worship a God who exists only to glorify himself? You know, if humility is one of the greatest characteristics that we as disciples of Christ can have, how can we worship a God who glorifies himself all the time? How can it be good for God and evil for us? Well, there's a very simple answer to that question. It's because he is God and we are not. He is the praiseworthy, ultimate good in the universe, the creator of all things. He is worthy of praise. You and I aren't. And anything good in us is a reflection of his goodness. I was reading the transcript of Russell Wilson, the quarterback for the Seattle Seahawks. He, gave a, he went back to his alma mater, Wisconsin University, and gave the graduation speech. And I was reading the transcript of his speech. And I was really struck by how he, you know, the whole speech was kind of just immersed in humility. He's, he's a, he professes to be a Christian, and you can see it in the way that he talks about his life and the advice he's given to these students, these graduates. But he also very clearly, in many places, talks about his great abilities on the football field and other sports. And I remember reading that and thinking, that for, for me, that's hard to imagine being able to talk about how great I do on the football field, but yet, in humility, really talk about who I really am as God created me and works in my life. But then I thought, but what if Russell Wilson was up there saying, well, I stink at football? Well, that would be a lie. He doesn't stink at all. He is one of the best football players on the planet. He's being honest about who he is. And really, when God shows us his glory, that's all he's doing. Is he's saying, this is who I am. I want you to see me. I want you to know me in all of my glory. Any other good in the universe, whether it's Russell Wilson's ability on the football field or a sunset or a waterfall or apple pie, anything else that is good in all creation, it's a reflection of his glory. He's the source of all that is good and beautiful and right. And what's the most loving thing that God can give to us then? If God is going to give you the greatest gift that he could possibly give you, what would that be? It would be himself. The greatest value, the greatest treasure in the universe a vision of God's glory. If you hear nothing else this morning, hear this. A vision of God's glory, by whatever means that comes, is the greatest pleasure that a child of God can ever experience, either here or in the hereafter. A vision of the glory of God is the greatest pleasure that a child of God can ever experience. If you get that concept, it'll transform your life. We can't help but praise what we highly value. I was watching the Phillies game last night. Anybody watch that game? Sorry, I said like three Phillies fans in the entire congregation. So 
But I was watching the Phillies game last night. Don't want to talk about the Pirates, but the Phillies game ended on a great play. A throw to the plate, nailed him, a perfect throw to nail the guy that was going to score the tying run that ended the game on the play. And I jumped out of my seat, and I shouted, and I yelled. I mean, I, somebody will say, why don't you do that in church? That's a whole other subject. I, my inhibitions that I have to overcome. But I worshipped a great baseball play. I couldn't help but shout about how great that play was. You see a beautiful sunset. You eat the perfect piece of apple pie with ice cream. You praise it. On Mother's Day, you praise your mother. On Father's Day, you praise your father, if you can. You praise the things that you treasure most. And for a child of God, there is no greater pleasure than seeing the greatness of who God is. There is no greater pleasure. That's why God hates idolatry, by the way. He says in Isaiah 42, verse 8, I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not give my glory to another or my praise to idols. Because of what it says about us. Because of what we need, not because of what he needs. Well, that brings me back to the end of 2 Corinthians chapter 3. This passage we read this morning is all about the glory of God. Do you notice how many times the word glory the word glory is used in this passage? It's all about the glory of God. But the whole point of this passage that Paul is trying to get across is to show us how much greater our view of the glory of God is than those who came before us. What a privileged vantage point we have because of where we are in the plan of redemption in history. We have a great vantage point, a much greater vantage point than our spiritual forefathers did to see the glory of God. He uses the example of Moses. And who could imagine a servant of God who saw more of the glory of God than Moses did? Moses, the one who scripture tells us saw God face to face and talked to him like he talked to a friend. Now, of course, he didn't see the fullness of God's glory or else as a sinner it would have killed him. But he saw the greatest manifestations of the glory of God that are recorded in the Old Testament, didn't he? He saw the bush that burned but wasn't consumed and talked with God who was represented in the burning bush. He was the mediator who called upon God to send the ten plagues upon the greatest nation on earth and, and the plagues that drove the greatest ruler on earth into submission. Moses is the one who saw the Red Sea parted so that millions of God's people could pass through it to safety. He saw God's glory. But you know what? After all of this, after he'd seen everything he saw at Mount Sinai, after he was handed the Ten Commandments, Moses said to God, you know what, God, one more thing. Could you please show me your glory? <laughs> I mean, God at that point is like, come on, Moses. You've seen more of my glory than anybody who's ever lived, and you still want more? I want more. I hope you want more. That's the nature of a child of God, is that until I see God in all of his fullness, as long as there's still more to be seen, I want to see more. That's what Moses is saying. And God honored that request, didn't he? Because that's the cry of a child of God. Show me more of your glory, Lord. 
And what the new covenant, the new testament shows us, teaches us, is that our greatest view of God's glory comes through faith and not through sight. That the greatest view of God's glory comes by faith and not by sight. Have you ever watched that old Ten Commandments movie with Charlton Heston or one of the more recent variations on it? And you've watched portrayals of the miracles that God did in the lifetime of Moses, parting of the Red Sea, the manna and the quail, the fire and the earthquakes at Mount Sinai. And as you're watching that, you ever have that thing like, boy, God, if you would only do those kinds of things in my life, if we could only see those kinds of things today, boy, I would be the, I'd be the greatest evangelist on earth. Yeah, I'd be out there knocking on doors. I'd be the most obedient. I would never disobey you, Lord, if you could put those kind of miracles in my life. Well, you go back and read the text. What you find out in Scripture is that God's people saw all those things too and immediately turned their back on God and rejected him. That we are not to live by sight. We are not to live by miracles. We live by faith. We are not less sinners than the people of Israel are by nature. And if we relied on seeing God working in supernatural ways in order to follow him, we would fall away just as quickly as they did, but for his grace. The quality of your encounter with the glory of God isn't determined by external factors. That's the reality of new covenant worship. Is that the quality of our encounter with the glory of God is not determined by external factors. But aren't those the kind of factors that we usually measure our worship by? How good was the music? How eloquent was the preacher? Was the sanctuary at the right temperature? Did I have a comfortable seat? Were the people friendly to me when I left? These are the criteria we use to measure worship. And you understand these are all external. They're good in and of themselves, but they're external. When worship is about an encounter with the glory of God through his word by faith. That's what worship is. It's like a movie. You see it all the time, don't you? They'll spend $200 million on special effects and wardrobe and a soundtrack and all the best actors. But if the story stinks, it's still a bad movie. And I'll say that about a worship service. You can have the the most professional, excellent musicians, you can have the softest seats, you can have the right temperature, you can have a beautiful building, you can have an eloquent preacher, but if he is not presenting the glory of God as it's revealed in his word as the object of worship, then that worship service stinks. It's about an encounter with the glory of God through his word by faith. And Paul's point here in 2 Corinthians 3 is that we see that glory so much more clearly by faith than any of our spiritual forefathers did because Jesus Christ has come. Paul says that the glory of God that Moses saw was the glory of the law. That the focus of the glory of God that Moses saw was the law. The law reveals God's glory because it's a picture of His holiness. It's a picture of his righteousness. It's a picture of his character. You want to know what God looks like? Look at the law. 
God looks like righteousness. God looks like purity. God looks like holiness. So yes, there's a powerful presentation of the glory of God in the law, but Paul says in verses 6 and 9, that revelation of law only kills and condemns sinners like you and me. It shows us our sin, it shows us the condemnation that our sins deserve and leaves us there, By if that's all we have is the glory of the law. It leaves us without hope and without life. In verse 13, Paul talks about the veil that Moses had to wear. You remember the story. He received the law of God directly from God. He saw God, so to speak, face to face. He takes the law down to the people and he tells them about the law of God. And after he's done, he has to cover his face. Because the people were cowering in fear. And Paul says, you know what? In a sense, that veil represented that there was an important part of God's glory that had not yet been revealed. That the law brings condemnation, the law kills, but there is more glory that is still yet to be revealed. And what Paul says is that that veil is removed in Jesus Christ alone. And the glory of the new covenant is far greater than the glory of the old covenant because it brings true life and true righteousness. In verses 14 to 16, he says that that veil that hides the fullness of God's glory is taken away in Christ. And when anyone turns to Christ, the veil is taken away. That's what the Apostle John was saying in chapter 1 of his gospel when he said the word became flesh, Jesus became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father full of grace and truth. The fullness of God's glory that you're ever going to see between now and eternity is going to come through the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Not only because Jesus Christ lived out the law perfectly in thought, word, and deed. Certainly we see the glory of God in the way that he lived. We see the glory of God in the power that he had over all creation. We see the glory of God in the wisdom that he had. Certainly we see the glory of God in all that. But you know where we see the greatest glory of God in the life of Jesus Christ? It's when he hung on the cross. Because there we see that God is both just and the justifier of those who put their faith in Christ. There's where we see the fullness of the holiness and righteousness and purity of God, but we also see the fullness of his love and mercy and grace towards those who put their faith in him. The greatest display of the glory of God is the cross of Jesus Christ. And Paul says in verse 10, Indeed, in this case, what once had glory, speaking of the law, has come to have no glory at all because because of the glory that surpasses it. Speaking of being out in the field on a clear night, about 4 o'clock, 5 o'clock in the morning, you start to see the beginnings of dawn on the horizon. If it's a clear night and there's a relatively full moon, you'll see, you know, there's a brightness. So you can see around, you see the trees, you can see things with not all their colors, but you see. But as the dawn brightens and as the sun comes up, the light of the sun overwhelms the light of the moon to the point where eventually you can't even see the moon anymore. And that's really the image that Paul's setting before us here. The law was glorious. The law revealed to us the greatness of God. But the cross of Jesus Christ that displays the mercy and love and faithfulness of God so outshines the glory that's represented in the law 
that that becomes all we need to focus on by faith. Jesus Christ, crucified and risen from the dead, the Lamb of God slain for our sins, our Redeemer, the one who gives us life eternal. Who would want to go back to living in the moonlight once you've seen the sun? Who would want to go back to the shadows of the Old Testament, to trying to live by the law when the gospel has been revealed in Christ? You see, this is the key to great worship. If God's people had focused on this instead of all their externals during the worship wars, we would have ended the battle in a hurry. The key to great worship is God revealing his glory to us in the face of Christ through his word by the Spirit as he enables us to see and understand what his word has revealed to us. That's where we experience transcendence. The supernatural breaking into the natural. The word of God being proclaimed so that we can fall to our knees and worship. One of the best books to read during the course of your life, second to the Bible, is a book called that R.C. Sproul write, wrote early in his ministry called The Holiness of God. If you have not read The Holiness of God, do it. It's one of the five books. If you ask me for the five books to, that I recommend that you read, that's one of them. And in the beginning, if you've read the book, you know that in the beginning of the book, he talks about an experience he had as a brand new believer in college. He went to a church-backed college, and he was sitting in a philosophy class, and the professor was teaching on the concept of nothingness, which was before creation, talking about God being the only thing that existed before creation, and then talked about how God, out of nothing, created everything that there is. By the power of his word, he spoke it into existence. Now that sounds like a first grade Sunday school class to you and me, so what? But for a brand new believer like R.C. Sproul, is this philosophy professor just delved into that. R.C. said, my mind was blown. I was just, that whole thing, he said the whole rest of that day, I walked around kind of in a daze, just contemplating nothingness and God. And God speaking, and everything all of a sudden coming into existence. He said, I was just so blown away by that concept. And he couldn't even sleep for a while. When he finally went to sleep, he said he woke up in the middle of the night. And he was still troubled by this, and he felt compelled by something to get up, get dressed, leave his dormitory room, and walk across campus. He wasn't even sure where he was going. And I want to pick up, I want to read to you just a couple of paragraphs from that chapter, picking up the story of when he kind of blindly stumbled up to the chapel in the middle of campus and this is how the rest of the story goes according to R.C. The chapel was in the shadow of Old Main Tower. The door was made of heavy oak with a gothic arch. I swung it open and entered the narthex. The door fell shut behind me with a clanging sound that reverberated from the stone walls of the nave. The echo startled me. It was a strange contrast to the sounds of the daily chapel services where opening and closing of the doors were muffled by the sounds of students shuffling to their assigned places. Now the sound of the door was amplified into the void of midnight. I waited for a moment in narthex, allowing my eyes a few seconds to adjust to the darkness. The faint glow of the moon seeped through the muted stained glass windows. I could make out the outline of the pews in the center aisle that led to the chancel steps. I felt a majestic sense of space accented by the vaulted arches of the ceiling. 
They seemed to draw my soul upward, a sense of height that evoked a feeling of a giant hand reaching down to pick me up. I moved slowly and deliberately toward the chancel steps. Each step on the stone floor resounded down the center aisle as I reached the carpet-covered chancel. There I sank to my knees. I had reached my destination. I was ready to meet the source of the summons that had disturbed my rest. I was in a posture of prayer, but I had nothing to say. I knelt there quietly, allowing the sense of the presence of a holy God to fill me. The beat of my heart was telltale, a thump-thump against my chest. An icy chill started at the base of my spine and crept up my neck. Fear swept over me. I fought the impulse to run from the foreboding presence that gripped me. The terror passed, but soon it was followed by another wave. This wave was different. It flooded my soul with an unspeakable peace, a peace that brought instant rest and repose to my troubled spirit. At once I was comfortable. I wanted to linger there, to say nothing, to do nothing, simply to bask in the presence of God. That moment was life-transforming. Something deep in my spirit was being settled once for all. From this moment, there could be no turning back. There could be no erasure of the indelible imprint of its power. I was alone with God, a holy God, an awesome God, a God who could fill me with terror in one second and with peace in the next. I knew that in that hour, that I had tasted of the Holy Grail. Within me was born a new thirst that could never be fully satisfied in this world. I resolved to learn more, to pursue this God who lived in dark Gothic cathedrals and who invaded my dormitory room to rouse me from a complacent slumber. That's worship. Let's pray. Father, we are never more satisfied than when you are glorified in us and we see your glory. Father, we thank you for the revelation of who you are that is given by your word, by your creation, and most importantly, in Jesus Christ, our Lord. We thank you that you have sent him that we might not only know you, but be reconciled to you by his shed blood. Thank you for showing us the glory of who you are and the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ. May we be moved deeply to not only worship, but lead others to find that same satisfaction in Christ. We pray in his name. Amen.